Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Dr. David Head, the author of A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and The Fate of the American Revolution. This is his second book as an author, but he has edited two others. He's also a professor at the University of Central Florida. Thanks so much, thanks so much for being here, Dr. David Head. Well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to, to be here with you today. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. Most people know that the Continental Congress declared independence from the British in 1776. What you may not realize is that it took seven more years for the war to conclude at least officially, and for the British to throw their hands up and say, if you want it, you can have it. Six months before the Treaty of Paris was signed, George Washington and his soldiers were awash in talk of conspiracy, of a coup, of an uprising among soldiers who were demanding their pay. So, Dr. David Head, before we get into the alleged conspiracy, and note the use of the word alleged, Set the table for us. Where was the Revolutionary War in March of 1783? So the American Revolution by 1783 is in this kind of weird standstill. Uh, the last major battle of the war was the American victory at Yorktown in Virginia, which is October of 1781. And looking back, uh, we often remember that as the end of the war. Um, and I know certainly when I teach it, I, I usually skip right from the, uh, the American victory to the Treaty of Paris and then to the problems that led to the Constitution. So I, I certainly skip over that last part, uh, as many people do. But in reality, there is this two-year period from October of 1781 through the fall uh, into November of 1783 where the war is still on. Uh, there's just, it turns out there wasn't a lot of fighting. Of course, the people living through that period, they don't know that there's, that there's going to be no more fighting. Um, they don't know what's going to happen. So the, the peace negotiations are underway in Europe um, and the, the American diplomats are trying to negotiate a peace that will lead to independence. Um, there's pressure in Britain to seek a peace, but that is not at all a foregone conclusion. In fact, when uh, George III, the, the king, when he hears about the British surrender at Yorktown, he assumes that Britain is still going to win the war, that it's not over by any means. That, you know, of course we're still gonna win this, is what his, his mindset is. So um, the American Revolution ends with the strange two-year period of limbo, where it's not clear what's going to happen. In that period, the army is kind of on standby. Most of the army is stationed in upstate New York, uh, in the Hudson Valley region, uh, Washington has his headquarters in Newburgh, New York, which is along the Hudson River. And most of the army is actually living a couple miles south in New Windsor, New York. Uh, there is a, uh, another army, Mer American army, that's in South Carolina under Nathaniel Green. But almost the whole bulk of the army is under General Washington in New York. And they're stationed there keeping an eye on the British who still occupy New York City. 
Again, because even though the British have surrendered to Yorktown, they still occupy major American ports. I mean, they occupy New York City is the most important one, but also Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina. The British still occupy important positions. And the American army is there just waiting and waiting and waiting. And basically all of 1782 goes by just waiting for what's going to happen. Uh, there's one general who calls the 1782 campaign season, he calls it a very insipid campaign. Basically, they just did nothing, said wait. Uh, then into 1783, the, the army is still waiting and they're starting to get nervous because they're hearing these rumors that peace is, is, is on the way, that the, the, the negotiations are moving forward and there's going to be an armistice, declare, an armistice declared any day. An armistice would be kind of a, a cessation of hostilities, while both sides would agree not to, not to fight each other anymore, pending a final peace treaty. So it's kind of a, a step on the way to a formal peace treaty. Well, that could be coming at any time. And you'd think that would be great news, right, for everybody. The war would be won, it would be over, there'd be independence, the army could go home, and that's what armies want to do, is to go home, right, in victory. It would be great except that the army is concerned about what's going to happen to them next. And this really dominates their thoughts in the, the fall of 1782 into the winter spring of 1783. And so in order to understand why they have that question and why there is brewing discontent, we have to know what it was like to fight in the revolutionary army from the personal perspective from the people who were on the ground marching in those, I'm sure, very uncomfortable boots. Mm -hmm. You mentioned there was lots of whiskey, and I love the a number that you give, 1.3 million shots of mm -hmm. whiskey. Um, there's also, uh, while there's lots of whiskey, there's very little hygiene and even less money to go around. So explain how all these years start to boil over for them and what it was like to be a soldier in this army. Yes, it's, it's just miserable. I mean, well, first of all, life in the 18th century is hard. I mean, <laughs> right. it's, it's miserable for everybody. It's miserable for everybody. Right. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here in my air-conditioned home. I'm sure right. you're in air-conditioned right. home. I mean, uh, you know, you think of the people in Texas, right, who are without electricity for, you know, even two days is intolerable, let alone a week or something that those people suffered. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're back to 18th century conditions. and We're, we're, not, we're not cut out for this. Um, so just even life for elites was pretty hard, something certainly we would not want to go through. You can imagine how much harder it is for soldiers who live in temporary facilities, huts that they built for themselves and that they share with a dozen other guys. Uh, even today, I wouldn't want to live with a dozen other guys in a small apartment the way, right. <laughs> you know. Or the, any other people who I'm not really, related really, to. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the hygiene standards of 18-year-old uh, men have not, have not, have not yeah, improved. They haven't improved. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Substantially. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, these are guys who, you know, they're just living in these conditions. Um, you can understand why they drink so much because life is hard. You want to kind of take the edge off of your life. But then that leads to other problems like uh, what they called uh, barrel fever. Barrel fever is basically drunkenness. Um, it's also characterized by black eyes. Well, black eyes from what? getting drunk and fighting with other drunken guys. That's what, <laughs> that's what it comes from. Uh, they demand kind of their, their whiskey ration. That's one of the inducements for being in the service is that you'll get a regular, regular ration of whiskey. So they expect it. Um, 
Yeah, so it's so very difficult conditions. Their hygiene is poor. Of course, they, they don't understand what disease is. They don't understand what germs are. Um, and again, you think about that, that it makes sense that with these microscopic organisms, organisms that nobody can see, that's what causes you to get sick. That, 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 that might be witchcraft, come on. Uh, you know, they do understand that you should not go to the bathroom in the same water that you drink. But, um, you know, you have your latrine cited correctly. That doesn't mean the guy upstream has his cited correctly. So lots of problems like that. So it's normal. It's, the experience is to be sick um, constantly, to be uncomfortable. And, and if it's you're not also getting cold. paid for this, it stinks. Right, exactly. And the, the, the soldiers, the, the officers, nobody had really been paid in any regular fashion during the whole war. And even when they are paid, it's usually in paper money that depreciates in value very quickly. Uh, so quickly that the Continental Congress stopped printing the money, the paper money. And there's also fear, right, among having a professional army in these days. Right. And this is another thing that's strange about the 18th century is that today we really honor veterans, right? And, and you know, uh, perhaps sometimes we go over the top in, in, in honoring veterans that, I mean, every, you know, every restaurant has a sale for Veterans Day and all that, that kind of stuff where you start to wonder, is this really about honoring veterans or just drumming up another sale for more business, you know? Uh, but in the 18th century, people were suspicious of soldiers, especially professional soldiers. Uh, professional soldiers were seen as a tool used by tyrants to take away the liberty of ordinary people. Really, the 18th century way of thinking, the only kind of safe form of military was the militia, because the militia were seen to be ordinary people, uh, well, ordinary men, uh, who would be farmers or whatever for most of their time, and then they would leap to the defense of their country, inspired only by their sense of liberty. And then once the battle was over, they would go back home. So those guys could be trusted with, with military service. Professional soldier, though, the mentality was that these guys who, you know, they don't have any other business, they're going to want to keep the war going as long as possible. If that means that they need to despoil civilians, then they'll do that. Uh, they cannot be trusted. That, that's just the sub suspicion of professional soldiers. Another, militia maybe, but professionals, no. Another word that we have to um, understand in order to understand the Newburgh conspiracy is the word nationalist um, in the context of the 1780s. Now, today, it means someone who wants to preserve, generally in America, preserve our country for a given group of people. But back then, it meant something different than that. So explain what the difference was and what impact the nationalists were having as the war came to a close. Right. So, so nationalist is a term that's often used to describe the politics of the 1780s as a kind of shorthand because they don't have formal uh, political parties. Uh, political parties are seen as a conspiracy against government itself, right? Me and my friends, we love liberty. You guys who oppose us you are a political party. Uh, you are the ones who want to oppose government itself. There's not really an idea of a loyal opposition in that period. So nationalist is a kind of term used by historians just because we want to say more than those guys, right? Something more coherent than that. Um, but it is misleading because what it really means, what the use, most useful way of thinking about it is nationalists in the 1780s are people who think more broadly than just their own state 
who think that there's kind of a common destiny for all the states as the United States, who think of that as one thing. They're reacting against the really strongly held position that, no, it's the states that are the most important thing. And this thing we call the United States, yeah, I guess that's useful to fight the British and win the war. But once there's peace, we can go our separate ways. We don't really need each other anymore. Um, and I can go back to being, you know, a person from Virginia or Massachusetts. And, you know, what does Rhode Island have in common, common with Georgia, really? They're so far apart. Right. So um, we win the war and then we go our separate ways. Well, for in, in many ways, practically speaking, yes. Uh, they still have an ideal that there will be a nation, of, but it's made up of 13 uh, mostly independent states. Okay, so this is, uh, this is hard to wrap your mind around if you're used to being in the United States, uh, where you, know, you can travel from one state to another. There's no roadblocks from one state to another, really. Uh, yeah, the laws are different. Uh, they're generally kind of in very specific things. But it's not like anything will stop you from traveling from one state to another under ordinary circumstances. Let's talk about the big guy. Let's talk about George Washington for a little bit. Uh, how is he doing? It's been, uh, I guess, about seven years. He's been, you know, his conditions have not been much better than the soldiers who we were talking about. Um, I suppose he's not doing the the grunt work of the fighting, but it's, uh, you know, he's a very hands-on general. Um, he's been at it. He's been leading these men around. What um, He was tired, I'm sure, um, but he was also ingrained in the military system at this point. He's got a power structure around him. He's got a, the respect and the a relationship with the Congress. Um, he realizes that there are these loose ends that need to be tied up as this war is coming to a close. Um, so explain why he thought that and how he's doing after seven years of all this. Yes, well, I want to start at your, your first comment there, <laughs> calling him the, the big guy, right? What's, what's yes. fascinating? One of the fascinating, we all know George Washington was really tall, right? Right, right. Uh, one of the fascinating things I found in doing my research is that Washington, it's hard to explain, Washington is not freakishly tall. Right. So he is certainly above average height. Uh, it's actually not certain how tall he was. He's like 6'1", 6'2", is sort of the best estimate. But he told his tailor, I am six feet tall. Um, of course, his clothes never fit very well, so maybe that's one of the reasons he's telling his tailor he's not the right height. Um, one of the things I realized is that there are a lot of other guys. I mean, that, it's hard to say. A lot is misleading. There are other men who are just as tall as Washington or taller. Um, men like Robert Morris, who was a superintendent of finance, is, is six feet tall. And like 250, you know, he's, he's a big man. Uh, Governor Morris, the assistant to Robert Morris, is also over six feet tall. Uh, there's one of the French admirals, he, call, he refers, supposedly, supposedly refers to Washington as my little general, because the admiral is like 6'5 or something like that. So putting Washington's height in perspective, yes, he is above average height, but he's not in, you know, he's not Shaq. He's not seven feet tall like that. <laughs> no. Or the uh, UCF used to have a, a player who's 7'6, right? Washington is not like that. But he's the big personality. He's the he's the center of gravity. Yes, I think that really that really gets to his something about Washington's effect on other people is that he seemed taller than he was. Hmm. Um, I think his military bearing certainly uh, helps with that. He always stands up straight and carries himself uh, bigger. And also, you know, the kind of 
the experience of meeting Washington, right, he had a kind of that charisma that would lead people to think of him as kind of larger than life, uh, kind of emotionally or psychologically, but then that gets translated into their perception of his physical height. So, so yeah, so, so that was a really fascinating thing that I, that I discovered. It really kind of came to my mind thinking about this, is I always thought Washington was just physically larger than other men. Um, and certainly he's above average, but there are other guys just as tall, but they don't get perceived in that same way as being, right, as being George Washington. And you get to have that sense of all, everything else that's carried with it. Um, your, other, your other question was, well, what is Washington's yeah, how's status? How's he doing? And, yeah, how's yeah, he doing? Yeah. So, so Washington, certainly the wars weighed heavily on him. Um, Washington has an enormous administrative burden. Um, one thing that is important for people to keep in mind is Washington is not only a general, he's a field commander, but he is also the commander in chief of the army. So he has, does everything from tactics on the day of battle to ensuring that there are enough hats for the men to go around and everything in between. And also the, the strategic vision of the war and the politics relations with Congress. Uh, all of those things weigh very heavily on, on Washington. His burden is somewhat relieved by having uh, a talented aides uh, around him. Alexander Hamilton was probably the most talented, who um, was really good at that. The biographer, uh, Ron Chernow, does a really, has a really good line about how Hamilton excelled at thinking how Washington thought, right? And being able to write responses to people, knowing that that's what Washington wanted, but without having to ask Washington which is enormously valuable. Just, you just handle all this paperwork and like, okay, that, that's exactly what I wanted. Saves you three, four hours from doing that kind of thing. Washington also had his, his burden relieved in some ways that uh, uh, his wife, Martha Washington, was with him throughout most of the war. Uh, there's one historian, Mary Thompson at uh, Mount Vernon. She's great, uh, yeah. She's, she's, a, yeah, she's, she's really amazing. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, just knows, just, I mean, she could do things like, like tell you what the menu was at particular dinners. I mean, it's incredible. She's calculated like how many days during the war Martha was with the army. And I forget the number. Uh, I, I'm, I must have, I have it in my book. That's one thing you write it down so then you don't have to remember it. But it's, it's some large percentage of the war. Martha is there too. So Washington is able to have his wife uh, with him, is able to have friends his so-called military family. These are his kind of close advisors or, and the uh, aides who work with him. So he's able to have that kind of sociability that means a lot to Washington to take off some of the burden of command. Uh, so yes, it is, it is a heavy, heavy burden, not just on the battlefield, but the politics and the administration um, are just an enormous, enormous responsibility for Washington. And you say that in those days, I hope I get this right, but you say that society was like a corporation where there was no chance to go up and down in rank. Washington wants the military to resemble that. How does that dynamic and the disagreement between soldiers and leadership fester into the distrust, into the distrust that becomes talk of conspiracy? Right. So this is actually one of the things that's changing as a result of the American Revolution is this, this vision of a corporate society uh, where everybody is part of the same body. That's really the, the ideal of the, the, the monarchical society. Um, and it's not impossible to, to change your rank, but it, it, it's certainly in England, uh, your rank is your rank, your status in society is more fixed than it is in the colonies. So one of the things that actually is causing tension is that uh, Washington wants to organize the army along the lines of the British army in which officers are gentlemen 
And the assumption is that gentlemen will be able to better command ordinary soldiers because they'll just be in awe of the, uh, the officer's gentleman status. Okay. So Washington wants, wants to replicate that. The problem is that in the United States, there just aren't enough true gentlemen to staff all of the officer positions. So you have to find some uh, men who are not really gentlemen and make them officers. Now you can think about this. If you're a young man who wants to move up in status after the war, one way you can do that is by becoming an officer. Because if all officers are gentlemen, then the fact that you were an officer will make you a gentleman, right? But not always, not really necessarily. Uh, so that's, that, that, that's a tension is that you have guys who want to be known as officers and therefore gentlemen, but they're not really gentlemen. They were the son of a shopkeeper, okay? And they might be better off financially, but they don't really necessarily have the manners or the education of a gentleman uh, or all the things that a gentleman should have, like the right kind of clothes and the right kind of china set uh, to pour your tea out of the right way, you know? And so certainly, today, if, certainly today, if someone became, went from being, uh, you know, someone without much means to becoming uh, a commanding general or someone high up in the military, they would be viewed by the rest of society in a different way after they got out of the military, without a doubt, right? Right, right. So that's, so that is a tension. Like, so you have these guys who, who are attaining the social status that they would never have been able to earn outside of the military. And like, how does that rub other guys who really do have that social status, right? They don't necessarily go for that. One thing that you discuss, uh, and I want to get into this talk of conspiracy mm -hmm. because that's what the Newberg conspiracy is all about here. But one of the things you discuss is that there may have been, or at least rumors of troops who wanted to create this monarchy west of the colonies. Not sure how much verification we have uh, for that after the war was over. But um, conspiracy theory is a, 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 prevalent thing at this time, you argue, um, during the early part of 1783 in American life in the 1770s and 70, uh, 1780s. So um, discuss, if you can, the conspiracy theories of the day. I just mentioned one of them. Um, there had also been a conspiracy, an alleged one, to kill George Washington earlier in the war that there is a popular book uh, about, uh, written by a popular writer. So just talk about this, this idea of conspiracy and how awash the country was in it, um, seen through the lens of this one, that there was this rumor of a monarchy that mm -hmm. some wanted to create west of the colonies. Yeah, so the 18th century way of thinking just assumes that conspiracies are a part of daily life. I mean, that's just how they understand the world, the way the world works. This is in the, the, the United States, the colonies in Britain, in all of early modern Europe at that period. Um, they just, they don't really understand that there's randomness to life, or that there are accidents. Um, partly this comes from a kind of a religious uh, worldview where if God's providence is ultimately controlled, then there is no uncaused cause. It's also partly a result of the scientific revolution. You might think, well, science will drive out all these conspiracies. But, but no, it's, it, science kind of assumes a kind of mechanistic view of the universe that, that there is, again, everything has a cause, um, you know, like a great machine kind of thing working. Well, you think that if anything bad happens to you, it's not an accident. It's because somebody wanted something bad to happen to you. Uh, you know, if you're in an accident or something or, you know, it, it just – we, we, we can kind of see that things, random things happen, but no, it's because someone was out there trying to get you. 
That's how just everybody assumes that that's the way the world works. So whenever there's any kind of unpopular or um, political um, event that happens, it's because somebody wanted to do something to you. So the colonists always uh, interpret the British intentions before the war, before independence, as a plot to take away their liberties. So the Stamp Act, for example, which, which placed taxes on various everyday household items, paper and goods and all kinds of stuff. It couldn't just be that the British made a mistake in taxing the wrong things the wrong amount and misjudged the temper of these people, you know, six weeks away by, by boat voyage, thousands of miles. It was that somebody in London was plotting a way to take away American liberty. It had to be that way. And the British thought the same way. It wasn't just that the Americans were, you know, kind of out of touch with the way Britain did things, didn't understand their leadership. It's because Americans were bent on anarchy. So some of the conspiracies, I mean, anything could be spun up in a conspiracy in the 18th century. So you mentioned this one uh, suggestion that an officer um, uh, comes up, Louis um, Nicola. Uh, he floats the idea that because the officers have been so badly treated by civilians, we should uh, form our own, our own republic, our own kind of constitutional, uh, constitutional monarchy, really, in the west of the country. And then we could rule ourselves and not have to put up with um, what he calls, he calls Republican fanatics, which he means all these people who don't want to have a, a professional military. Okay. Now the officers were, uh, the officers, but many people in the army, the enlisted men, have been promised land as a inducement for their military service in places like Ohio, right? That, that's where they're gonna get land out of this. So the idea, so that's real. And then he kind of takes it a step farther to say, well, what if we just organize kind of our own state, our own way of doing things that we could run ourselves without the disrespect of these, uh, you know, people who think soldiers are all, are all after their liberty. Now that's, I don't know how far that really got. It seems like it's mostly just in Nicola's, uh, uh, his own mind. Uh, and maybe his buddies are all talking to each other. Nicola makes the mistake of um, floating this idea to Washington. And there's a really funny series of letters where Nicola writes to Washington and then Washington writes back and says, like, have you lost your mind? What's wrong with you? <laughs> In the most polite 18th century way of saying this, right? How did you think I, I would think this was a good idea? Like, you know, just, just go back to your hole and don't mention this anymore. <laughs> so the letter of, of March 10th, 1783, um, who writes the letter? Who is it to? What does it say? And what threats do they make against Congress? Yes. So this is the, the letter that really touches off the, the, the kind of the dramatic, uh, the climax of, of the story. It's a letter written by uh, John Armstrong Jr., who was an aide to General Horatio Gates. And Horatio Gates was the second in command to Washington, so the second highest uh, officer in camp at that point. Uh, the letter is apparently written in Gates's headquarters, the, the house he was using for his headquarters. And it's a letter written by uh, Armstrong and his friends addressed to the other officers in uh, the, the Hudson Valley region there, asking them to come together and meet and to discuss sending a strong message to Congress to tell Congress of their grievances and to tell Congress, look, it's now or never. Um, we need our money, we need our pensions, and we need them now. Um, there had been a previous petition sent to Congress a couple months earlier, which was much more kind of, kind of it was more polite than that. Uh, what Armstrong wants is a more strongly worded letter. 
Now, that doesn't sound too bad, right? You can write strongly worded letters, okay. Where Armstrong goes further is that he tells the officers to consider what he calls their alternatives. And the alternatives are these. If the war continues, he tells the officers, we should say we're not going to fight. The, the Continental Congress, they don't want to pay us, give us pensions, they're on their own. We don't, we're not going to lead the army. The other alternative is that if peace should be announced, uh, Armstrong says the officers should consider telling Congress we're not going home. We're going to stay here in the field with our arms and you know, let Congress come to the conclusion what we're going to do with those arms if they don't pay up. Yeah, and you said so, peace was an obstacle to them getting paid. Yes. So this is the strange part is that the officers feel that if peace comes before they've had a settlement of their accounts, okay, before they can see there's money set aside for their pensions, they feel like they're going to lose all leverage. Because once they're ordered to disband and they go home, they'll be separated from each other. They'll have to seek uh, redress individually. You know, they, 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 all their leverage will be gone. And they fear that they're going to be forgotten. What they think is, might happen is that they'll go home. There'll be a celebration. Everybody will say, oh, thank you for winning the war for us. But, um, you know, sorry, sorry, guys, we don't have any money. Um, <laughs> right. And we don't need you anymore. It was real great. You did, us, you, did us, you did us real solid there by helping us win the war independence. We like it. But no, we're not going to give you any more money because we don't have to. You're all at home now. How does George Washington react to this letter? And why does the term Newburgh conspiracy start to take shape? Yes. Yeah, so, so Washington's immediate reaction, um, the, the only description I have of this said that Washington was amazingly agitated. Washington had an awful temper that he kept mostly bottled up. But you can imagine, you know, you know, people who bottle up their emotions are like, but they start to come out, right? They, Serenity they now, right? Like exactly, Seinfeld. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Um, I would not have wanted to be the poor, the poor uh, courier there who had to deliver that letter for him to read. Um, yeah, so Washington probably exploded when he saw this. But publicly, publicly, he is firmly in command. And he tells the officers that they can have their meeting, but postpone, so by several days. So in other words, cool, cool yourselves down. You can meet and then deliberate maturely on what you're going to do. Okay, so those are Washington's kind of very placid, soothing, I'm in charge, nothing's wrong here, kind of reaction to the men. Privately, he writes to uh, several people, to Alexander Hamilton, as well as to the uh, president of the Continental Congress, Elias, um, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Boudinot, 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 I don't know. I don't know how French, how French his pronunciation is. Uh, anyway, saying that he has, he's highly concerned. And Washington thinks that there's some conspiracy afoot. He, he doesn't think that the officers could have come up with this idea themselves. He thinks it must, this letter must have been written by somebody in Philadelphia and sent into, uh, uh, among the camp to inflame the men's passions. Uh, it's actually kind of funny. Washington, he, he says this letter is too well written to be composed by anyone in, um, in camp then. And it's really funny because Armstrong, you know, he's kind of vain. He wants credit for writing this beautiful letter, right? But he can't come out and say, oh, it's me, me, me. I did it because... You know, Washington is really angry about this letter. So for the rest of his life, Armstrong actually wages this kind of thing where he wants this, everybody to know that it was him so he can get credit for this. But he doesn't want to actually come out and say that it was him because then he'll get blamed for this too. 
so it's really funny the way, even as an old man, his vanity is so, it's just, he's in a quandary, right? He can't get the credit he thinks he deserves without also getting all this blame. Uh, so th that's what Washington assumes, that this is a conspiracy hashed in Philadelphia, sent to inflame the passions of the officers. George Washington says, uh, well, he urged soothing measures, uh, mm -hmm. is the quote in your book. And then um, you also say that crushing the opposition would have caused more problems than it solved. Why do you argue that? Right. So Washington has a number of options how to, to respond to this. I mean, he doesn't know how deeply this goes, the sentiment goes, if there's a conspiracy or if it's just a couple of crackpots sounding off. Um, if Washington were to take strong measures, I mean, he could have sent the, the, you know, the military police in, arrest anybody who's been passing this around, you know, say he wants to get to the bottom of this, find who the ringleaders are. You know, this could be construed as um, as a kind of because um, they went outside the chain of command for sure. Say this is kind of mutiny, perhaps treason, right? He could have all the guys executed if he really wanted to push it. However, if Washington were to react very strongly, like crush what was going on, everybody is going to know about this. And if everybody knows, I mean, meaning politicians, the whole world eventually will know that there is a mutiny in the American officer corps. And that'll really reflect badly on the army, on Washington's leadership, on the United States as a whole. There are mutinies all the time amongst the enlisted men. That, that's kind of expected in armies of this period. But the officers, right, gentlemen, that's a big problem. Washington fears that if he reacts too strongly, people will assume that there are these big problems in the American army and in America itself. And all the people, you know, the British, the, all the Europeans, they'll, they'll just say, yeah, we told you guys, you know, you want to try to be independent without a monarch, you can't do it. Look, you haven't even finished the war yet and it's already collapsed. This Republican government, it doesn't work. Ha ha, we, we told you guys. Explain so Washington, Washington does not want the, the whole nation to be humiliated by too strong a reaction, which is what will happen if everybody finds out that there's this deep threat or something in the army itself. So explain how um, George Washington uses theatrics and showmanship in order to carry the day here. Um, he goes, there's this, there's this memorial um, that Congress, he, you know, they, there's a presentation made to Congress and there's a memorial. Um, I guess it was in, I think it was in December, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, explain that and explain how George Washington uses his stature and theatrics to calm things down. Yeah, so Washington has a highly tuned theatrical sense of, you know, theatrical in the best, the best sense of it. He knows how to be George Washington. He knows what other people expect of him as a commander, as someone who can be trusted with power. And he knows how to carry himself and always act in a way in which he will confirm people's vision of him. And that, that's not necessarily unique to Washington. In the 18th century, the, the, everybody wants to have a good character. So today, character, we think of good character is what you do when no one's watching, right? That's, uh, that, that's actually John Wooden, the UCLA, UCLA right, basketball right, coach. Right, so right, right. The character is what you do when no one's watching, right? We think of that as an internal thing. In the 18th century, character is what you do in front of everybody else. It's what everybody. How do you look? You. Right, right, right. How do you look and act and carry yourself? That's you have a good character. Is the opinion of others? Because so that's always in. So Washington is a master of that, but other people, you know, knew about that too. Washington is especially good at it. So Washington, he 
has this kind of dramatic sense. So he uh, allows the officers to meet. He tells them when to meet, where to meet, that kind of thing. He implies that he's not going to come. But then, you know, when the, the meeting time rolls around noon on, on the Saturday they're going to meet, Washington is at the door. So he takes them by surprise, right? <gasps> Washington's here, right? You can hear them kind of, kind of gasp. There he is. And then he asks for their permission to speak, right? Which is ridiculous, right? They, why does he need to ask for permission? But it's signaling that this is your meeting and I'm here as a guest, right? And I respect you by asking your permission. And of course, they give him permission to speak. And then he stands at kind of a, a raised uh, a dais, so like six inches or so kind of thing. We talked before about Washington's height and his charisma. He didn't need any help commanding attention, but he has extra height there. All, right, all eyes are, are on him. And he gives this, the, this speech that really implores the men to think of their duty, think of their honor, and to not do anything that would risk the honor that they have justly won through their conduct of the war. At the end of Washington's prepared remarks, and he wrote his speech by hand um, that he would be able to deliver it precisely, he goes to read a letter that he had recently received from a member of Congress. Uh, this letter described what Congress was doing to really address the officer's concerns. And Washington wanted to offer this as evidence that Congress understood that they were taking measures to soothe the men's, men's raw feelings, but that things are just going slowly because it's, it's, it's a legislature, it's a deliberative body, right? We've all been on committees, they move slowly, hmm. right? Uh, so Washington wanted to reassure them. He starts to read the letter and he finds that he can't see it very clearly. Uh, it's in a smaller handwriting. I love this, the glasses. Okay. I love right. the glasses. So then Washington has to put on his glasses. Now, Washington had just started wearing glasses like a month before. And I don't know if you have progressive lenses, people have progressive lenses, bifocals. <laughs> you, know, you know it takes some time to get used to these things. Uh, and you can imagine that's today. This is in the, you know, back then, yeah. you had to grind them by hand. Right? Yeah. Brutal. Um, you know, Washington had to order them. Like the doctor did not see him and say, okay, I'll measure you. He had to like order them, you know, like mail order without, you know, having any precise measurements necessarily. Okay. So he takes these glasses out to, to read. And they're not like today. We can slip them on and off, no problem. You had to kind of wrap the, the arms around the back of your head, right? So the repressure so, so that they would stay on. And so while he's doing this, there's an awkward pause. And one thing that gentlemen were expert at was smoothing over all the awkward pauses in life, right? So no one would ever feel awkward. And I think then in that moment, Washington says some version of, uh, I, excuse me, gentlemen, I have not only grown gray, but also blind in your service. Uh, and that's a wonderful line that calls, calls attention to Washington's vulnerability in that moment and really seems to break the tension um, combined with everything else, his, his, his arguments and his ideas and all that, but seeing that Washington has suffered alongside them reminds them that even though he is the great Washington, he has, he's, he's on their side. He's on their side too. What proposals settle this thing? Um, what happens to the pay? So uh, Congress is able to come up with the money uh, in a way. Uh, things move very quickly. So after, so this is March 15th is the, the climactic meeting. And then the next week there is news arrives of an armistice. So there's a, both sides have agreed to stop hostilities. And then in April, uh, Congress starts, you know, making plans to disband the army, get them home, get them home as fast as, as they can. 
so the army breaks up very quickly in the, the late spring, early summer of 1783, very quickly there. Getting the men paid. Washington tells the, the Continental Congress, we need three, three months pay, I believe is what he says. That's absolutely indispensable. We gotta send them home for something. Uh, coming up with the money is very difficult because the Continental Congress cannot raise any funds of their own without the permission of the states. And getting the states to give permission is a big mess. So what ends up happening is that the superintendent of finance, uh, Robert Morris, who I mentioned before, Robert Morris ends up paying the army himself, like out of his private accounts, uh, on his own kind of his own credit. He signs, I think it's $750,000 worth of, of uh, his own notes that are given to the army to get them home. Uh, yeah, so just imagine this, the US government does not have the money to pay off its soldiers, even anything to really get them home happy. A private individual has to do it. Uh, and more than that, Morris has to sign every note individually. So you can just imagine the marathon signing session right. of all the stack of paper. Uh, I remember when, when my wife and I, we bought our house. For some reason, we needed to, to initial every page of the mortgage application and three years worth of tax returns. And it wasn't just you. It was, <laughs> we did it too. Yeah. You did it too. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, this is insane. Like most of these are just yeah. like forms and stuff. Like, right. <laughs> you know, um, that was irritating enough, right? I can't imagine like signing with a with a quill pen everything. So, yes, that, but that's what happens. That's the kind of mess it's in. Is Robert Morris has to pay the army to get them home. You say in the path to forging a new government, the Newburgh conspiracy reminded Americans of the precarious relationship between an army and its people, when the people didn't feel much attachment to each other let alone to the professional soldiers. So was there a Newburgh conspiracy? So it, it, in terms of a, a conspiracy, meaning a plot directed by somebody with a, with a prearranged goal in mind, uh, I don't think so. Uh, I think what we have here is a series of competing interests that were played out in a way that could have been very dangerous but I don't think that there was a kind of a plot to use the army to threaten the uh, civilian leadership of the country with hopes of frightening the Congress and the state legislature into uh, you know, passing new tax laws or anything like that. I don't think it was planned out that specifically. What I think happened is that you have a lot of angry people who let their emotions get the better of them, uh, in particular the officers. I think that the, the letter from John Armstrong Jr. is the officer's idea themselves. And not even the whole officers, maybe a couple dozen guys who came together and they say, we're gonna do something to push everything forward. Um, certainly there were people in Philadelphia, like uh, Governor Morris, like Alexander Hamilton, who is a uh, delegate to Congress from New York, who wanted to see the officers take a strong position right, telling Congress, you need to pay us. It, they certainly wanted that. But that, it's not clear to me that that was illegitimate, right, because they, the officers are citizens. They have a, the, 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 they're citizens too. They have, they're allowed to have political positions. Um, you know, th that's something that Washington reminds the officers, uh, that reminds people all, all the time, is that these are citizen soldiers. They don't throw off the character of the citizen when they become in an army. Now, many people in the 18th century assumed that soldiers did cease to become citizens. 
when they joined the army. Okay, so that's a, a source of tension. So I think what happened is that a lot of people got angry and sent this, um, sent this message to Congress without a kind of anybody pulling the strings behind the scenes. I think though that given the fondness for conspiracy thinking of the time, that it was really dangerous to do that because people would just assume there's a conspiracy even if there wasn't. That, that's the real danger. And once you start getting people angry and voicing their, their anger, especially if you get them all together in one place, I mean, you know how things can go sideways very easily. Um, you know, I, I've been to a couple of HOA meetings with my neighbors who are wonderful people. But if you get them complaining about landscaping, okay. <laughs> then it really gets suddenly, nasty. Suddenly they're all animals. <laughs> yeah, a member of the Senate was stabbed over landscaping, Rand Paul, just a couple of years ago. Exactly. So, uh, yes, so it was dangerous in the sense that anything could happen. But I don't think that it was a formal conspiracy where a small group of people were trying to foist their vision on the larger country with the threat of violence. What is so American about conspiracy theory? JFK, McCarthy, foreigners at almost every stretch, uh, at almost every, during almost every stretch of American history, every, every portion of it, um, the so-called stolen election of 2020. Why is our so, our, and I mean, we can keep going, 9-11 and whatever else people think, why is our country so awash in conspiracy theory? What's American about conspiracy theory? I, I don't know that there's anything distinctively American about the fondness for conspiracy thinking. This is, I think it's part of the human condition. Hmm. You know, we, we, we form small groups and that's one way that we protect ourselves from outsiders is by having a preference for the loyalty of other people around us and being very suspicious about outsiders and their motivations. Uh, I think that one of the things that sort of a modern way of thinking, and perhaps in America we've been more blessed by this, is that, you know, that we've, we've had a kind of uh, material abundance so that, you know, the kind of competition for everyday resources uh, has been perhaps less in the United States in the 20th and 21st century than it would have been in other periods uh, in, in history or other places in the world. So we can trust each other more because there's simply more to go around. It's probably not a coincidence that we have all this conspiracy coming out of the last year when you know, this whole COVID crisis, a pandemic, the idea that a, another person can't really go about their business innocently because if they're sick, they can infect me. So their business, what they do is my business. Um, we can't leave each other alone the same way that we had previously. At least that's the fear that so many people have. So I think all these conspiracies coming up, you know, it really, they're always there in the way that people relate to each other, but they become much worse, I think, simply because we've had this enormous crisis that, I mean, nobody ever thought they would live through this. I mean, you know, I, I, I teach the, the, the plague of the, the 1300s, right, my Western Civ course, and I mentioned the Spanish flu, the, the, the so-called Spanish flu of 1818, 1819, or no, I'm sorry, 1918, 19, yeah. 1919. But honestly, I, I thought those were, I didn't think anything like that was going to ever happen again. I mean, I thought we were safe from that kind of thing. And, you know, I study history, right? I think that way. Yeah. We all just thought we were safe and this would never happen again. And this did happen. Well, somebody must have made it happen. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe this, this is just kind of a return of something that's been historically fairly common. And it's, it's us who's the problem. We thought this was, we were done with this kind of thing. And we're not. We're just not. Are the forces that led to the Newburgh conspiracy 
similar to those that created Q, an accidental conspiracy that contributors didn't realize they were contributing to. Yeah, so that conspiracy, I mean, I think there's a sense in the 1780s, at least as American Revolution's ending, just that fear of what's coming next. Um, can we trust other people? Can we get along as a nation? What's going to happen to us afterwards? There's been just enormous sacrifice that's going on. Um, the, the Q conspiracy, I, I don't know exactly what, what leads to it, or I don't, you know, I don't There might be a reason no one it. can, yeah. there might be a reason no one can find Q. Right. Right? There might right. be a reason for that. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's just, I think there's a sense when there's enormous change and uncertainty. Uh, you know, we already had, even before that, we had low levels of trust in institutions. So not just government, but uh, low levels of trust in all institutions. I mean, I, I think of my own, um, you know, really, really beloved Catholic Church, right? 20 years ago, I was more kind of dismissive of the idea that this was a, a major problem. I, I, I bought the explanation out of, coming out of Boston, which was that, you know, leaders really didn't understand how some of those problems worked. They didn't understand the rate of recidivism amongst, um, you know, in, involved in sexual abuse, that the bishops listened to their lawyers and to the psychologists, and they did what they thought was best at the time in the 70s and 80s. Okay. But then you see that even after supposedly we knew what all the causes were, you see that those problems were still coming up again and still cover-ups and all that kind of stuff happening uh, you know, into the 2000 teens. And we saw that the man, what really made me very angry was that the and more willing to listen to some conspiracy ideas was that the very man who was put in charge of the, the church's response, at least publicly, to the abuse crisis in 2001, 2002 was the, the, the formal card, former Cardinal uh, Theodore McCarrick, who we now realize was the worst one of all. Um, you know, and th that was the guy who was put in charge and did, was this just an accident or is he that much of a sociopath? Um, how deep does people who should have known about this uh, and then didn't act? So I, I was talking to a friend uh, last week about some of these, this Q stuff and conspiracy theories. And I said, I admit it, you know, I'll admit this publicly. I mean, I, I am more willing to believe some of the conspiracy thinking about the way the Catholic Church has handled some of the abuse crisis. I'm more willing to think of that now than I was 20 years ago. And I'm not sure exactly what that means. Um, <laughs> you know, and if I'm willing to entertain some of those ideas, I can't imagine. I'm, I'm very kind of suspicious of conspiracy thinking in general. I can't imagine what other people who are not so suspicious of conspiracy, how they react. Um, so that's a long way from um, uh -huh. no. the 1700s. But, you know, that's, that's, that's been in, my, in the background of my thinking as I wrote the book and certainly as I've been talking about it more and more is I'm suspicious of conspiracies, but I cannot, cannot um, just dismiss them out of hand because I've seen the way that some places, some, some people operate. Um, and the way that um, I might have been overly skeptical in the past. It's kind of left me chastened in, in some ways. So, um, yeah, that's, as a historian, that's always important to kind of be open about what your, what your biases are, what your, your preconceived ideas are. And certainly I'm suspicious of conspiracy thinking, but that doesn't mean it never happens either. I'm suspicious of conspiracy thinking, but. But, um, right. Uh, what do we need in a leader when conspiracy theories come up today based on what you learned about George Washington? As you reported, George Washington 
is his instinct was to soothe the passions. What can we learn from George Washington's stewardship during the Newburgh conspiracy for what our own leaders need to do today when conspiracy theories come up? Right. That, that's a really great question. Um, and that's what we'd like to be able to draw lessons out of this, right? What can we, how can we apply this today? Uh, one lesson, I think, one, one way Washington handles this crisis, I think, is going to be not very helpful for us, which is that Washington has spent his entire life, right, winning the credibility, having enough credibility, winning the respect of other people, uh, so that when a crisis reared its head, people knew they could trust him. They knew that this is Washington. We don't have any doubts about him. So the officers knew they could trust him, and Congress knew that they could trust him to handle the situation. So if one lesson is spend your entire life cultivating a reputation for honesty and good character. Okay. Well, if you haven't done that in your elected <laughs> office, right, we're, we're, we're in big trouble. Um, beyond that, what, what could you do now if you haven't spent, you know, you know, your entire adult life building up to the kind of reputation? Uh, I think what Washington does is that he does not overreact. He, he understands the psychology of passions getting out of control. Okay. So he's able to tell these men, you need to cool yourselves down, right? Cool off, take a few days, and then we'll be able to talk about this maturely. And this is still great advice for everybody, right? right? You know, um, if you have a bad temper, and even if you don't have a bad temper, right? If, if you feel yourself getting angry, right? What, what does your mom tell you? Count to 10, right? Mm -hmm. that, that is actually very good psychological advice that everybody should practice. So that, that would be good. Just kind of take a breather. Uh, unfortunately, in our kind of, you know, over... Uh, overplugged in environment, media environment, right? We're not encouraged to, to slow down and take a minute. Uh, you want a reaction right away. Uh, and probably if, if a leader would say, look, I'm going to consider all the options and I'll, you know, I'll report back with my decision in two days. Like, well, what had the world will go crazy, right? <laughs> if there's a crisis, like, what is he doing for taking two days off? Why does he tell us now what the answer is? So I think part of it is, is that leaders, need to be able to slow down and articulate how they're making their decisions and that they are working on a problem, okay? They're not ignoring it, but it's going to take time to come up with a solution. And I think that the people, you know, like you and me and anybody listening, we need to be able to accept that it takes time to make decisions, to learn some patience too. Uh, so, so those are the kinds of things I would encourage, but I don't know that there's any real constituency or real expectation that, you know, people are going to be patient, right? Uh, a lot of this comes down to things that I try to, try to, to teach my children, right? If patience is good. Yes, it's hard, okay? but to be patient, to carry through the promises that you make, right? To, to be an honest person, right? So that other people will trust you. That's what we need in our leaders and in each other. Um, but I don't know. It seems like that's in short supply. Dr. David Head, the author of A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Certainly check out that book and also his website, davidheadhistory.com. He's on Twitter at davidheadphd. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate at least half of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today. 
conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.